If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. And on today's show, we've got LaChina Robinson, chronicler of all things basketball, of all things WNBA, on her platforms on ESPN. I know in the last few weeks we've talked about wanting to spend some time to talk about how the worldwide movement for racial justice, for racial equality, is going to be carried on when sports return. Today is our chance to talk to LaChina about her views on how the WNBA and basketball players are going to be anchors in caring for the discussion. It's a really nuanced, really unique take from someone who has been on the front lines of this day in, day out, excited to break it down with her. I'm your host, Brad Burke. I am a sports marketer in Chicago and on the phone with us, still holed up in his New Jersey suburban fantasy. It is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, how are you? Um, The suburban dream continues. Um, You can hear my son running in the background. It's funny, coming from a small place, like our kids are always used to being within eyeshot, like within eyesight or earshot of us. And it definitely took a week out here before they settled into not having to see us all the time. So that was strange. You know, it was just like, mommy, daddy, where are you? So we finally gotten it to the point where they don't have to see us at every second. That's nice. That is nice. Um, I know my wife is looking forward to that day with me when she can just not see huh. me. Um, speaking of my wife, shout out to my wife, our, our 10th anniversary in a few days. Um, so Mazel, dude. 10 years. That's a long time. Good work. I, it, shopping for gifts, extremely hard on, in a pandemic. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, like, I pulled something out for uh, Mother's Day and I felt really proud. Um, and I have to say that my daughter nailed Father's Day, so she did great. So Awesome. All right, so at the time that we're recording this, sports is on the way back. Now, I, I couch that not to be cynical uh, or overly paranoid, but you know, you can't help but follow the news and see that cases keep spiking, that uh, you know, areas in Florida where a lot of these leagues have zeroed in as a potentially uh, welcoming place to play are having their own issues with uh, the response. I'm not sure. Shout out Ron DeSantis. (laughs) I'm not sure if the, I'm not sure at the time that we're taping this, there won't be massive delays or changes or uh, announcements to come. But as for right now, we're looking at late July being the time that the WNBA is coming back. The NBA is coming back. So we thought it was a great time to talk to LaChina Robinson. If you don't know LaChina, she played, uh, hoops at Wake Forest. Uh, she went on to work for the ACC. She does work with ESPN. It's a great podcast around the rim. I wanted to talk to her about how uh, athletes and and specifically athletes in the WNBA, a league of predominantly black women, mm-hmm. is going to carry forward the conversations we've been having, the very tough conversations around racial injustice, around police brutality, and what LaChina feels is going to be the ways that they can continue to do that when all eyes shift over to uh, their sport returning. It was a really interesting, nuanced conversation, a time for me to hear perspectives and and really uh, you know get her to open up about how she thinks things are going to unfold because you know we talk about everything from how what's the fair share of the burden for athletes to have to carry on their own? Yes, they are influential members of the black community, but um, when is the where's the line for this being too much on their shoulders? We talk about, mm-hmm. yes, we've seen a lot of uh, the white players in, in the league and in other sports speaking out, but how can they do that in ways that doesn't steal away the limelight? You know, because we've already seen, yeah, Sue Bird features and um, Brianna Stewart features and Elena Deladon, but there are a lot of other women of color in the league that, as LaChina says, uh, it might be a good mic-passing moment uh, for some of those stars to to, to hmm. step aside and, and to listen. And we talk about her experience as a woman of color in sports media. Um, hmm. Look, you, you know on this show we've talked about online harassment. We've talked about yep. the unfair share of it you get when you're a woman in sports and especially a woman of color in sports. And so we, we took a little bit of time to just sort of hear her experience speaking out on these issues and what it's been like 
um, the last few weeks. So Gareth, for me, I know we talked about our responsibility being not just covering this in the moment, but trying to extend our platform and over the long haul to see how things are going to progress, uh, not just when sports come back, but you know, th- really on the rest of the year. So I'm really glad mm-hmm. that China took some time to talk to us. It's awesome. Can't wait to hear it. And oh. I've been, I have actually been listening to the podcast more, Brad. <sighs> Thank you, Gareth. I'm glad that under the pandemic, when you have literally nothing else to do, Gareth, you finally got around to listening to your own show. I'm back, baby. I'm back. <laughs> All right. Well, here comes LaChina talking about the return of the WNBA and the continuation of the movement. And then afterwards, g- stick around. Gareth and I will be back to distract you. Lots of pressing news to get into that I want to ask you about today. But um, before we, we we dive into the more serious side, I, I want to start with someone had posted a, it might have even been the ESPNW account posted a great photo of you playing at Wake. And I was surprised to see you kind of critiquing your look on the court. You kind of went in on your knee pads or whatnot. And I, I before we get into everything else, I want to ask what... Um, uh, what advice do you have now for uh, for you playing back then in terms of how to gear up? Um, besides the that knee pads are not the coolest look <laughs> on the court that you could possibly have. Um, you know, gosh, when I look back on that time, the reason why I'm so critical of that picture is because I was just an awkward player all the way around. So the knee pads just add on to a story that have been developing <laughs> since I was 14 years old. Like I'm extremely clumsy. I just look like a fall waiting to happen. So uh, that's kind of where I was going with those comments. But really, you know, I always when I look back at my career, you know, I was happy with what the game of basketball has done for my life. Right. Like I would not have ever found Wake Forest. I don't even know if I would have gotten a college education if it wasn't for sport. So I'm definitely grateful for those those times. But I wish I would have maybe taking my career a little bit more seriously. Like I didn't think playing professionally was in the realm of anything I would ever be able to do. Uh, But, you know, you have basketball plays a a role in your life for various reasons. And for me, it obviously wasn't to be professional, but I wish I had at least had that mindset. So if I could go back and change anything or give myself some advice, it would be, you know, you could probably work a little harder and just see where it gets you, you know, but uh (laughs) I mean, I think if you were my AAU coach or my high school coach, you would say that I got way further than anyone ever expected. So I did. Um, I was a success story overall. And hey, they they were defending your shooting form on Twitter pretty uh, uh, pretty righteously. So you got to feel good about that too. Hey, I needed to get some respect for the lefties out here. I feel like we get left <laughs> out of the conversation when it comes to smooth shooters. So I was happy to see that as well, Brad. And look, uh, my, my show does cover, you know, what people in the sports world love beyond sports. I saw you tweeting a little bit about 90 Day Fiance. I, I, it got me thinking, is there something that you've binged um, uh, during the, the lockdown, the quarantine or something you've gotten really into that um, that, that has helped, uh, uh, it, you know, soothe the uh, internal tensions we've all been facing while we've been uh, stuck at home? Oh, my goodness. What have I not been binging, Brad? That's the question. <laughs> Um, a non 90 day fiance after the 90 days is definitely like my new obsession. Um, I just think the show is almost unbelievable in a sense when you, mm-hmm. when you get into the stories of these people who are going across the world, sometimes from the first time to possibly propose or get married. And don't get me wrong. I believe in true love. I am all for it, but, uh, I mean, traveling 32 hours to get to a remote <laughs> area in Brazil um, and having to sail on a random boat for 20 plus hours. I just don't know if love is that worth it for me at this point in my life. But, um, you know, kudos to everyone who who's on the show and who is kind of going at their shot for love. The other show is Breaking Bad. I finally oh, yeah. had a chance. Everyone else was into Breaking Bad. I mean, has been for years, but I finally sat down and pretty much been binge watched every season loved it it was incredible so i think those are probably t- the two shows at the top of my list and then i was also happy that insecure had a new season you know mm. this season and then there's the show um with reese weatherspoon and carrie washington i can't remember the name of it but it was like it's little fires everywhere that was the name of it yep 
so that was outstanding. Really enjoyed that that show as well. Only one season, so I didn't really get to binge too much, but um, I, I've enjoyed that during the quarantine. Well, now that you finished Breaking Bad, get ready for everyone to be tweeting at you. You got to start Better Call Saul. Maybe take a month off before you, you, you dive into a whole new sh- spinoff show. I watched like 10 minutes of it and maybe because Breaking Bad was so good, I just could not transition <laughs> right. into Better Call Saul. I need some time, but I am going to give it a fair shot. I am, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try well, you know, look, um, the, the, the fun stuff aside for a minute, because we are in what has been like a, just a truly historic past um, several weeks as we've seen the demonstrations for racial justice against police brutality. Uh, I would love to hear about how we're going to spin this conversation forward. And with the WNBA coming back on the front end of when uh, most other leagues are exploring their return, we've already seen so many players speaking out so effectively, um, making real, uh, you know, taking real actions toward change, which we'll, we'll get into on an individual level. But as, a, as, as the league gets ready to come back, how do you expect the players and the teams to be carrying forward this conversation they have so effectively stoked uh, across the globe. Yeah, I know, Brad, I appreciate that question. And you're right. I mean, what we've seen happening in our world over the last month has been both very sad, but also encouraging in terms of um, the changes that we can all make to our lives to be more conscious of of where we are um, as a country, as it pertains to race relations. But a, a few things stand out to me about the opportunity ahead. I would say, first and foremost, that uh, it's exciting to think about the eyes that will be on sport, right? We've missed the sport of basketball. I know for me since March and being robbed of of March Madness. So you, you look for ahead to um, just an opportunity for us to take our minds off of the coronavirus effects and even what's been happening a little bit with the social uh, justice movements to to get back to something that's enjoyable. At the same time, I do agree with the sentiment that Sport is going to allow us to hide somewhat from the problems that need to be fixed. I do think right now that um, racism and and prejudice and the social justice movement, police brutality are the first things you're seeing when you turn on your television and it's what everyone's talking about. And it just seems like such a great collective movement. And I do think when we go back to sport, it's going to allow people to have a distraction. Now, some, it'll be a healthy distraction, but for some, it'll allow them to just kind of slowly sail away from the more difficult conversations I think we've been having uh, more consistently over the last few weeks. So there is some concern while also excitement. But from an athlete standpoint, you know, I am looking forward to what, in particular, the WNBA and the NBA will be doing as they are in that single site to use their collective voices. You know, I think it's a it's a very unique setup where you'll have all of the players or as many of them as it will go in one place um, that can work together on strategies and um, use their voices to to strengthen the social justice movement. In particular, with the eyes that will be on television, which I think our ratings will be through the roof as people are excited to welcome sport back. But I also want to recognize that there are those, the Kyries, the Natasha Clouds, the mm-hmm. Renee Montgomery's that feel like their impact can be best felt in the community. You know, I mean, that is something that I think is overlooked is that that strategy is also extremely effective and maybe even more needed in some senses because these communities are hurting from what has happened and, and the way things have been torn apart a bit Uh, by racism and and the police brutality. And so having an impactful figure like an athlete in the community, Renee Montgomery passing out water, Natasha Cloud in the protests, having them there, having them tangible, um, you know, putting them in positions where they can be in communities to talk to public officials about real change, that's extremely impactful as well. So however you want to do it, I think it's totally up to you. But either way, I just hope that people don't use sport as an excuse to turn off the conversation of social justice. I mean, already the WNBA is, is the le- by far the leader in the number of, of athletes who have stepped forward and said, I'm going to, I'm going to sit out. I'm going to make this my primary focus. Do you, do you in, in some way feel like they are going to shoulder too much of a burden on this in terms of having to, to make deeper sacrifices for their own 
careers here in this moment or versus some of their male counterparts who, you know, again, make, you know, significantly larger salaries in some cases, have more flexibility to do that. And yet we have not heard the same number of male athletes come forward and and make that type of commitment just yet. Yeah, I I do think we will hear more people step forward, Brad. Um, You know, I think this is a timing thing for everyone. And first of all, let me just acknowledge how difficult of a decision this is to make for anyone. No matter you know how much money you make or um, how popular your league is and all of those different factors, you know these professional athletes have been playing sport their entire life. It's what brings them joy. It's their livelihood. Um, you know how they are able to live and sometimes provide for their families. So uh, it's a very difficult decision, I think, across the board. But you mentioned the burden, the sacrifice of the WNBA. They've been doing that. You know this is a league of women who have taken less money, who have lived overseas for seven months a year Mm -hmm. in order to grow the game of basketball for the next young woman coming up, but also to, you know, make a more, uh, a better living financially. So they've often often had to go a different route throughout the duration of their careers in order to stay true to who they are, to their sport, and often make a sacrifice for the greater good. So you're right. I mean, it does seem as though, they have the most to lose, but also the least to lose because in a way people aren't really checking for the WNBA, right? Like this is a league that's still growing. And when you look at comparatively MLB, NBA, it's got a ways to go, you know, and, yeah. we, and you know, we can't get into it now, but all the issues of the lack of exposure for women's sports and so on and so on. So their salaries aren't what they should be. And, um, you know, they've had to make a lot of sacrifices along the way, but I, I just really believe that at the end of the day, this is a group of women women that we've consistently seen do what what is right for them, right? Yeah. Do what's right for them as individual players, as a league, um, to speak up for the voiceless and to represent the minority, which for a league that's 80% women of color, um, you know, black women have had to make decisions um, uh, throughout their life under the burden of both sexism and racism. You had a great conversation um, on Around the Rim with, with, with Natasha where you talked about this being you know, a league of 80% of women of color. And I think it, it raised an interesting point because clearly we've seen a lot of the um, white players step forward and, um, and try to, to be allies. That said, we also, when that happens, there are times when the media will key on a Sue Bird or an Elena Deladon when there are um, black women who are speaking out and are and, and are definitely in a much better position to comment on the things that they see. What kinds of advice do you give for the um, white athletes in the league, and both for the NBA and WNBA, to be allies, but to be cautious not to overstep or overshadow um, the black voices that I think are, are probably more primed to speak knowledgeably about, about this issue specifically? No, that's a really good point, and I appreciate that question. I will say I think the WNBA is a league where you see so much public support, right? I mean, for example, Elena Deladon and how she has supported the movement as pointed out by Natasha Cloud in her Players' Tribune article. So white athletes in the WNBA, Brianna Stewart, um, have stepped up to be allies across the board. But I think you make a great point in that because systemic racism still exists in our world in the way it does, many media entities still feel more comfortable with the white woman, with the, the white man, being the voice on any topic because that's where their comfort level is um, in regards to, you know, maybe individual bias or feeling like, you know, they have to go with popularity. And um, we can get into several layers of why I feel like some of the the white players are more popular in certain instances than the black players. But it's on the media, I think, to do our homework and to be willing to go to that next layer in the WNBA. Like, I I just think there's a problem overall, not only as it pertains to racism, but just not enough attention to the league to get to that second level of player or to, if you can't have Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart and Lena Deladon, like there's Tina Charles and, um, you know, just a number of WNBA players. Like I said, Nekio Gumake, Tineo Gumake, Candace Parker, for an 80% black league that I don't see why a lot of the prominent voices of the league aren't African-American women. So it's up to us in the media, but I think there's also an opportunity for the white 
female athletes in the WNBA to cash the mic, as I would say, you know, like mm -hmm. I think there's a, there's an opportunity for a Sue Bird or a Diana Taurasi or a few of those when it comes to issues of, of racial justice for them to say, hey, I think you should talk to so-and-so about this or, hey, I've got a teammate, Jewel Lloyd, or I've got a teammate, Natasha Cloud, for this, you know, show that someone may want you to come on and speak for them to have a chance to um, to use their voice. I mean, look at what's happened with Renee Montgomery and Natasha Cloud. Now mm -hmm. they're everywhere. But that started with them having to step up and and really risk it all, as I would say, to use their voice and put their thoughts and opinions out there. And now people are saying, wow, these women are brilliant. Well, that's because you got past the first level of obvious and easy WNBA players. You just don't go to the leading score and think that those are the only voices of the league. These women are dynamic. There's great depth to this league. They're well-traveled, educated, charismatic, and it just takes us doing our research on this end to get to that next level of player. Yeah. And look, we've seen a lot of companies say the right things. They've, they've expressed uh, concern. Maybe they've uh, you know, made donations in the past couple of weeks, but I also just having worked on that side of the, uh, of the sports marketing landscape, understand some of that at a certain point is, is lip service. What expectations do you have for these companies that have maybe, uh, expressed compassion in tweets or in public statements to step forward and to better fund and support these, uh, women of color who play for a league like the WNBA, like you said, 80% of, um, the league is, 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 you know, women of color. And yet, I think you pointed out very astutely that the, you know, the U.S. women's soccer team is perhaps getting a lot more uh, exposure with media, uh, corporate dollars than the WNBA. And it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to point out, oh, well, well, maybe the, the, the racial disparity of the athletes could be part of that subtext. Yeah, I mean, I've been very upfront about saying that, you know, I feel like the WNBA's issues in regards to popularity are not just related to the fact that it's women's basketball, right? Like, because black women have um, issues already in life when it comes to visibility. I mean, you don't see black women in as many spaces as you should, um, again, with them being the double minority, both with race and sex, we're often the voiceless. Um, and so with that, to your point, my hope is that there's just a different level of accountability coming out of this movement. Um, you know, and I think we have to be willing as people, wherever we are in the spaces we live or where we work, to call it out. You know, I mean, I've been most impressed by those organizations that have come out with actual plans for how they want to be intentional about diversity and different mm -hmm. programmings they're starting and different monies they're putting towards it. But I do believe that we have to be willing to call it out. I'll give you one example. And this is more along the lack of support for women's sports in general. But one thing we noticed was Xfinity last summer. Like when you speak into your mic, WNBA, the games didn't come up. Now, if you say WNBA, if you say NBA, then the schedule for the games come up. But WNBA wasn't even programmed into their scheduling hmm. um, technology to bring up WNBA. So we fought and fought and fought and fought. And finally, they changed it. Finally, they fixed it. And those are the kind of situations where you've got to be willing to call it out and say, hey, we don't see black women here. We don't see the WNBA here. This is not what you what you said in your statement against racism isn't reflected in your um, in your advisory board or where your funds are going. So my hope is that, yes, we're getting a lot of lip service, but I hope it ends up in the end to not be lip service. I hope it ends up coming with action, coming with real change, and that people who are not Black women would be willing to step up in those spaces where they see that they're absent and see that they are not included. Yeah, and we've been talking about how the athletes talk about this, but it, from your perspective, I mean, we also know media are um, influential voices online. How is the experience of reacting to the news of the day, of speaking your mind about this, um, been for you personally? And this, I say, fully knowing that the double standard exists, 
that women in, in, in sports media endure much worse harassment and w- women of color in sports media, I think, um, have a whole other level. We saw that yesterday with Jamel Hill becomes a trending topic because everybody decides to pile on her uh, after the, uh, the, the the NASCAR situation w- w- with Bubba happens. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, what, it's, what has it been like for you to speak about this? And, and how has that been like in this online environment, which is incredibly toxic at times? Yeah, first of all, Brad, I, I've documented your work and what you've done around women and sexual harassment on, online, harassment of all kinds online. Um, for those of us that are sports journalists, so thank you for your work and your recognition. But what I would say is it has been an extremely difficult because it does feel like a burden, but it also feels like a release. Like these are issues that I feel like I've been facing by myself. Now, not to say I don't have allies in this, but you do feel a sense of loneliness and isolation as you are often the only one in the room. And so now when you take your voice to social media, you're sharing it with not only the people in your your circle and your network, but people you don't even know. And so that's a scary thought of how will this be received? Will people understand? Will they believe me? Will they want to get on board with what I'm saying? Are they apathetic? You know, and just mm-hmm. don't necessarily care about what may be happening with with black women. And so there are a lot of thoughts. But at the end of the day, Brad, what I have to do is I have to speak up for the voiceless. And I have to be honest to the point that I feel like I need to be in, in order to create change. And there's a difference between being offensive and being honest. And, and I think if people can take their lens of, okay, I'm offended by what people are saying and really listen and be educated by the experience of another person, then our world will will, will emerge as a very different place coming out of this. Um, But, you know, you have to get to a point where, you know, you can lay your head on the pillow every night. And that's always my goal is like, can I lay my head on the pillow every night knowing that I was true to who I was and my values, the way I've been raised and what I believe? Um, And so that's important, even if the whole entire world is against you. When I think about Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King, I'm sure that there were moments in their lives where they felt like they were being, you know, I mean, that they were taking so much heat for for what they believed in and why they did the things that they did. But at the end of the day, when you're fighting for human rights, when you're fighting for civil rights, there is no wrong because everyone should be guaranteed those rights and opportunities. So one of my famous, my favorite quotes is stand for something or your fall for anything. My hope is by the end of my career or my time or whatever, that I would have stood for what I believe. And hopefully I work for a company that believes in me standing up for what I believe. And hopefully the people around me and that support me uh, would want me to do that. So uh, I guess that's the hope, but we'll see, Brad, you know, we're in, we're in the thick of this, but so we'll, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, you know, as we get ready to wrap, I, I, we talked a lot about the the serious issues that we haven't really even gotten into. The fact that we're still in a pandemic, that you know, cases are going up, uncertainty is going up. Right as um, the WNBA and the NBA are, are are trying to get back to to playing, and w- one of the things that kind of makes me uh, a a little sad is the WNBA had arguably the most exciting offseason in its history, right? And, and there was so much anticipation. So just what's your mindset going into the season, assuming that everything goes back as planned? We know things are changing minute to minute. But wh- what has you both excited and optimistic about what we might see from the league and how ultimately uh, the league can continue to to grow its fan base and the excitement around the sport? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I think was on the forefront of the minds of the Players Association as well as the WNBA as they were pushing to create a way for there to be a season. And, and, and I'm all in favor of that. I think if, when you look at the fact that these players need money, some of them are in CBA situations where they need this year to happen for various reasons, um, or some of them just feel better when they're on the basketball court. You know, some people don't want to be away from the issue. Some of them want to be in the midst of it, doing what they love. So creating that opportunity for there to be a season is great. And I tip my hat to the WNBA, the Players Association. Um, But that's one reason why they wanted to push for this is that, yes, it was a great free agency period. To me, the best that they've had over the course of the WNBA's existence, um, the CBA is is now in place. And there are some players that are in that final year before they get to cash in on some of the money um, and the percentage revenue, some of those other changes for the league that will be beneficial to players. So 
Yeah, a lot of excitement, a lot of big things to look forward to. But I think at the forefront of everyone's mind right now is just health and safety with the numbers surging in our country and us seeing some of the highest coronavirus case numbers that we've seen since this thing hit. Um, you know, it, it, you start to question whether or not we really do have control over this virus. Do we know enough about the effects of it? And I think those are all things that the WNBA players are considering right now as the, they're on the clock to make their decision about whether they will opt in or out of the season. Yeah. Well, you've been so generous with your time. As we close, can I ask you quickly about the Rising Media Stars um, uh, program that you co-founded? <laughs> how, how is everything going with that? No, I appreciate that question. So, yeah, we started Rising Media Stars, which is a nonprofit organization, 100% volunteer nonprofit, where we are creating a pipeline for the future of sports broadcasting, starting with women of color. And it's a it's a program that I started two years ago in hopes of being somewhat of a transition for the young women that are getting ready to embark on their career in broadcasting, but don't quite have that actual on-camera experience. And what we've done is we've partnered with um, the professional teams in Atlanta sports teams, so the Dream, um, United, the Hawks, and the Falcons on actually getting these young women on field experience. So they are down there, they're doing opens, halftime hits, they're doing player interviews in the locker room, which then they can use as for their reel to get an actual job. And so that's the kind of the sticking point of the program. But we also have mentoring. We do um, a lot of online educational sessions, in-person meetings, just helping them to transition their brands and understand how to ask the proper question. And, you know, what is this broadcast media life really like? And I co-founded the program with a, a wonderful guy named Kevin who works on the production side. So he and I are learning a lot about nonprofits, a, cr a crash course. Uh, but as far as the programming side of things, we've had 10 young women come through the program and they are just phenomenal. I look forward to all of them having long careers in sports broadcasting. But if anything, it's just kind of my little part um, of trying to diversify the face of the field that I now work in and offer support for women of color so that they have a better start to their careers. No, it's awesome. And I'll tell everybody to go follow you, uh, go listen to your podcast and, and gear up for the season. Do, do my sky have any hope? I, I live in Chicago. I, I, I mean, I, I feel pretty bullish after, you know, uh, Diamonds Breakout last year. Sleuth still got a spring in her step. Do we have any hope here? Your sky are actually um, at the top of the teams that I okay. am most interested in seeing. I mean, the way things ended last season was tragic. <laughs> I think it's going to be a season of redemption for the sky. Uh, Diamond, no doubt, is the future MVP. So this could be this could be a big season for the sky, especially because from what I'm hearing, a lot of their roster is expected to play this summer. Yep. Um, so. Yo, you have a lot to be excited about, Brad. Awesome. And we are back. In the sports world, athletes, coaches, media, they all do interesting things, and then we tell them, stop being yourself, stop being interesting. You're being a locker room distraction. That's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we celebrate and champion distractions every week by telling you what's been distracting us. Gareth, why don't you kick things off? Tell me about your palatial suburban life where you can do things like put your kid in one room and, and go into another room. Well, I, it started out that I was just reading a lot, and I was trying to make this a really like intellectual time. And then like my distraction for the last week, after we put the kids to bed, I just wanted to watch the dumbest, most basic television imaginable. And I watched all, I ripped through all of Netflix's Space Force, which I don't even know if I'd recommend it, but it was definitely my distraction. I think that that show, first of all, we're at our, our friend's house and I, I love the generosity that they showed us in sharing this home with us, but their televisions all have like motion smoothing on it. So, you know, everything looks like a soap opera. Oh, which was, that's the worst, man. But it was the perfect way to watch this show, which was the most, I don't know, just sort of like, it felt so Netflix formula. Hey, it's Greg Daniels from The Office and Steve Carell from The Office and we'll do this. And Amy and I were watching it in the first couple episodes. 
I was like, this is unfunny and I hate it because it's paced wrong because everything is 32 minutes instead of 22, like a network half hour comedy should be. Um, and we were like, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. But the cast is so good. And then the second night we found ourselves watching it and we were like, Steve Carell, John Malkovich. Um, there's like 800 other funny people in it. And we were like, eventually it'll get good. And by the end of it, we were like, I don't even know if it got good, but I was comforted spending nights with these people. And that to me makes it like the quintessential Netflix show. Like we're gonna throw a bunch of money at these faces. I don't know if what we're gonna get is any good, but you just wanna hang out with them. And so you'll watch it anyway. And so that was my experience in watching Space Force. It felt strange, but it's felt very Netflix. So there you go. How on the nose was the kind of Trumpian political commentary? From the previews, I got a little nervous. It was going to be a little too kind it's of fine. I mean, like it's like it's the but world no, we live I in. I want to clarify. I'm not like, saying you can't make fun of the Trump administration and stupid like Space Force. The jokes to me felt a little obvious and, and, and like and I can't tell if that's just the trailer and if it was actually smarter and funnier in the actual series. Uh, let me put it this way. The Trump stuff is the least of their problems. You know what I mean? And by the time <laughs> it gets going, I'm fine with it. Uh, I just thought the first few episodes took the pace. I think, honestly, it's mostly the pacing. I was like, are they going off just like a second draft here and they just rip through it? Um, and I honestly do think there's something about people rushing things to air on Netflix at 10 minutes too long. I remember when Arrested Development debuted on Netflix and all the episodes were like 28 to 35 minutes and all these critics were like, this was a better show when it was tighter at 22 and you had to like account for commercials and breaks and you were just under the thumb of whatever you had to deliver for the Fox network. And now you're on Netflix, you can just hand in a half hour and stop editing. And I think that makes all of these shows less funny. Like less is more, leave me wanting more, get in, get out, pace it right, pace it fast and move on. But it's probably cheaper to go longer and you're not under any constraints to hit a time. So why bother? So do you want to know? By the end of it, I loved it. I like, I didn't love the show, but I was comforted by it. So Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, do you want to know how little adult television I watch now? How little? I have not finished The Last Dance. Oh, neither have I, but that's like... Last Dance by the end got to kind of be a tough slog, man. I mean, like... <laughs> no. That was no. you make oh. you make Emmy winning sports documentaries. You are way too in the weeds on this, dude. The Last Dance is a awesome miracle of television. It got long, bro. It got pretty long. I know how it ends. You know, give me it's all a- the scenes of Michael Jordan smoking a cigar, waving a bat, and being like, "Fuck that guy who looked at me." <laughs> how dare okay, how much do you? What do you? You remember that scene? I remember too, and I remember the end of episode seven. When he was like in tears and he was like, was I an asshole? Yes. But I got to see all my, like, would my teammates have experienced this if I hadn't been such a jerk? And it shows all. And it was incredibly powerful. Like, that was the whole movie. It was awesome. But I don't know. All right. Enough about that. Like, we could debate this separately. What's your distraction? (laughs) Okay, so a couple weeks ago, we had Michael Rothman on from Consequence of Sound and the Losers Club to talk about Stephen King. Oh, yeah, we did. And at that time, Gareth, I owned (laughs) five Stephen King books. I sent you a note and said, hey, got any online used bookstores? (laughs) You sent me uh, Better World Books. I don't know where they're based, but uh, they had very cheap prices. Gareth... How many Stephen King books do I own now? Uh, higher or lower than 10? 26, bro. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I kind of went to town. So the thing about this that I wanted to break down, because you and I said we're going to read some, we're going to revisit some Stephen King and occasionally on the pod we'll do like sort of a, 
you know, maybe sometimes on the pod, sometimes just for fun, we'll do um, kind of a book club. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into specific titles, but I do want to talk to you about the joys of first editions because oh, yeah. when you're ordering these book, when the these used books, you're finding them as, at great prices because all Stephen King is like so ubiquitous. It's not like it was, it was done in editions of a jillion. It's not like know? finding like, a version of Nightmares and Dreamscapes in hardcover is like super hard. But mm-hmm. what I was able to find, and arguably the reasons why I can't, I ended up getting like maybe two of the same title. Don't tell my wife. Um, I was able to find a couple of my like favorite or the more iconic books, and when they shipped, I was like, "Oh, this is a hardcover first edition. This is great." Like, and I wasn't, I wasn't even expecting it. I just was like buying because it was four bucks yeah and so i got like like a first edition dead zone and it's in really good shape i was like super pumped i got like yeah. a first edition misery in in great shape with that old kind of iconic cool cover the tommy knockers again a, a book that was you know millions in print but it was actually pretty cool to get i'm looking i'm looking over my stuff you know like skeleton crew came in hardcover nightmares and dreamscapes um Gerald's game, which again, not oh, the greatest. man, I bought that in hardcover when it came out. You know, you don't again, you don't need to apologize for any of this or make any justifications for it. But what I got, um, what I thought was interesting was, yeah, look, there are some hardcover books, some first edition books that I'm just super pumped up to own, you know, like my mm-hmm. my Theodore Roosevelt trilogy, uh, that Friday Night Lights autograph that you, um, you know, that you sent me. We, by the way, we've never gotten Buzz Bissinger on this pod. We we got to do that at some point. Um, talk leather. Yeah, we'll talk. <laughs> He's got a lot he would potentially want to break down. That I'm here for that content. I guess what surprised me, Gareth, was I still got pretty pumped up and exhilarated getting first editions, even though they are not valuable <laughs> and yeah. not hard to find. And I was wondering, you as a book aficionado. Can you explain why it seemingly became important to me to have misery in hardcover, not just misery in paperback? Because I think we they're they're more substantial objects, and we like living with those things. What I found is one of my favorite. I I went through the similar thing looking for editions of Stephen King online, and some of my favorite were the late seventies, early eighties paperback editions, like the super minimal paperback edition of the shining when it's just like a silver cover and then like a line drawing of a little boy's head head. yeah right yeah that's it and that was the first that was the first stephen king book i read and that was the edition i read and i won when i went to buy another copy of the stand that's the one i wanted to find and buy and eventually i did um and i think these things all like you want to be surrounded by the media that we love. And it, one of the things I worry about um, with my kids growing up, like, are they going to give a shit about having books around or will they just read everything on an e-reader and it won't matter to them? Um, because we have a lot of books in our house and it's the kind of stuff that it makes me happy. Like we, my wife and I have landed on this. We like stuff. You know what I mean? Like for better, <laughs> for worse. We like having books around. There's art on the walls. There's a collection of decorative stuff, like ceramics and things like that. We like stuff. It's the deal. Like we're not the minimal people, um, and it is what it is. And so, like having those books around are, you know, you can pick them up off the shelf and reread a section you love and remember reading it for the first time. It all it enriches your life, and so that's why I think you enjoy it. Do you have a favorite like cover of a book um that you own or that you've seen? Let's say I mean, own. Seen- I mean the, the ones that you've seen don't count. I'm just talking about like is there a book that you own that when you look at the cover it could either be yes because it's valuable or whatever or it could just be like uh, I just love the look of this. Yeah, I mean um there's a book from the late 60s I love called Hard Rain Falling by a guy named Don Carpenter. I highly recommend it. It's easy to find now. New York Review of Books reissued it. But I found a cheap 
first edition of that, and I just love it. I also have a cheap, beat-up first edition of Slaughterhouse-Five, and I just love that cover. Like, it's arched, and it has Kurt Vonnegut's name on it, and it's just, they're beautiful objects. You know, Hard Rain Falling has this weird, slanted font on it, and it's mostly a white cover. Um, I don't know, some of those books, the design that went into them is just gorgeous. There's There's a reason... I've got a small collection of old pulp novels. I collect some of the bigger guys, but it's I'll never buy the the fanciest editions of them. But just some of the old pulp covers are such a unique form of art. You know, I was just reading Stephen King's The Body, and he talks about reading a lot of those same books um, in there. And it just, it they're unique objects, and they're all, they're interesting to live with and to reference and to have around. Oh, I also have a small, if I had $10,000 to spend on a book, I would buy the three volume illustrated aluminum slipcase Moby Dick illustrated book. But there was a smaller version of that that you can buy for $70 from the time. And it's an illustrated with woodblocks version of Moby Dick by Rockwell Kent. And uh, I have the small no cover edition. For, it's worth like 50 bucks, but it's just a beautiful art book. And it's worth having around. Yeah, I've got a, a Lincoln. Like, there's a series of of Lincoln uh, books by Ida Tarbell that have like an indented cover of like a, like kind of an imprint of Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing like I got one of them. Someone gave it to me, and I was like, "Oh, it's a beautiful book." And I, you know, it's it's up on my shelf. And then I saw like a like a like a another one. Like it, it, I realized it's part of a series in a bookstore once, a used bookstore for like four bucks. And I didn't buy it. I'm like, what the what the fuck was I thinking? Right. We've got books. We have a book called the guest room book that we just thought looked cool. And it's been on our shelf ever since. But you're a big the thing I like about you once you said to people who put their books in order of color, you were like, no, dude, like they're not. The the books are there because they have information, entertainment, knowledge. They're not there as a a, a, like you, you can put them in a in a room to add a certain level of of flair or taste, but the minute you turn them into a color-coded accessory, you might as well put up garbage from Ikea, right? Uh, I feel very strongly about that. And I have had friends who color code and are great readers who definitely disagree on this. And I believe Sarah Spain is another one of those people who whose bookshelf was just rated by the like rate my bookshelf Zoom cult. And she's a color coder. We should maybe talk to her about this. Like, why color code your books? And tell me I'm wrong. Tell okay, me I'm wrong. I take I take TV personalities out of it because I think some of that's aesthetics. I think if it's too busy behind you, I think people are like, clean it up. Mm-hmm. I really believe it because I know exactly what you're talking about with Sarah. And I just think she's in like a very tight room where the color coding wouldn't be as... I mean, she's just taping her stuff in there. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's of it small, more yeah. as like if you came into someone's home and they had two bookshelves like in their main living room and they were all color coded. After I heard you say that, I, I kind of cringe a little bit. I don't get like judgmental about it, but I'm like, nah, okay, cool. Yeah, but I've taken some heat on this one and um, it's mellowed me on it. I will say that, uh, it, but it ain't. It is not for me. <laughs> so. Well, look, as somebody who is currently buying up all these Stephen King books, I consider myself pretty weighty in both <laughs> aesthetics <laughs> and in the intellectual side of reading. So I don't want to call myself a snob. What are you dude. reading next? What are you excited about? All right, so I pounded through Pet Cemetery. We'll have to talk about that once your yep. delivery comes. I'm about halfway through Nightmares and Dreamscapes, a short story collection. Mm-hmm. Not the best. Um, okay. I tried to then parallel path, like starting uh, uh, different seasons because I've never read that. I know that's another one you and I said we were going to read together. Dude, yep. reading, I'm not going to get too into it, but reading Shawshank is surreal. It we is have to talk about it. So it, it, I just did weird. It. It's so weird. The things that are I, different, I think Frank the things Darabont's that are the same. It's, yeah, he, I, I mean, he really did make we called it a couple weeks ago. It's a handsome movie. And I think he did a good job with it. But when you read it, it is I, I, the only way I can describe it would be like if you were watching your wedding video and your wife was played by an actress. 
Yeah, like, I yeah. remember seeing this, but this is so weird, right? Like, what's going on? Well, I do like I did the handsome movie comment, which I still stand by. But I think the adaptation of the story is genius. I think he pulled off one of the great adaptations of all time, all time. Like he crushed it. It's amazing to me. Uh, we'll discuss. But it's a surreal yeah. experience to read. Um, I'm honestly excited to get past it because I just I feel like I'm watching it on um, on TBS or something TNT, yeah. and I want to just yeah, get yeah. to apt people. Dude, um, apt people was a stomach churning read. I really um, did not enjoy how it made me feel, which is probably a good thing. Like that's why you read. It reminded me why I read Stephen King. And um, uh, I know we talked about doing <laughs> Dark Tower. Pet Cemetery, uh, different seasons, and Salem's Lot. But now that I got Dead Zone in the mail, we may need to do Dead Zone, or I can read oh, it and yeah. talk about it. No, I just read it in January, so I'd love to talk about it. And Done. I've been reading, dude. I, you can edit this out if you need, but like the last pod you did um, on Stephen King has me reading a lot of Stephen King listicles, um, and I was really in. I was really surprised at how highly rated Dead Zone is. Um, it made me excited. I was like, oh, I didn't overrate this book. People tend to think of it as pretty solid. So, uh, Gareth, can I ask for a favor? Yeah. Uh, please email me all those links right now. <laughs> oh, I will, I'll send you everything I found. The you New York I... Magazine list was very thorough. Vox was thorough. It was all good. You so. and I are, uh, uh, if nothing else, <laughs> compulsive. So it, mm -hmm. it, we had that conversation about Stephen King. It does not surprise me that we are still drilling down. I can promise our listeners this is not going to become Losers Club 2. Go listen to the <laughs> Losers Club podcast. Uh, we are going to uh, uh, d do a bevy of different things. Let's end with some shout outs. A sh big shout out to LaChina Robinson for joining the podcast. You know She's gearing up for the WNBA to return. Go listen to Around the Rim, her podcast with ESPNW on all things uh basketball WNBA as we talked about it was an awesome offseason for the league and I hope that the pandemic allows for them to play uh, I'm excited to see what the athletes do with their platform but I'm also excited for the basketball I'm a sky fan we've had diamond to shields on LaChina called her a future MVP she came on talked about Game <laughs> of Thrones we've had her teammate Courtney Vandersloot I am ready for a sky championship um and Gareth any shout outs on your end no, you you got this one. All right. Well, shout out to uh, and shout out to our recent guests and any Stephen King head out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in the immortal words of rapper extraordinaire Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Together.